0: Welcome to the Good News Ride Home, I'm Jackson Bird. Today, many countries around the world take cautious steps toward reopening, but spikes of new daily cases are still popping up. Should people with mild cases of coronavirus be allowed to isolate at home? Why the passage of time feels so disorienting right now, and why Clorox wipes are still so tough to find? plus how to reduce zoom fatigue and the gene that causes South African bees to have virgin births. As nations around the world cautiously begin to reopen, distressing upticks in cases are occurring. Quoting the New York Times, Singapore, once a model for its speed and efficiency in tracing the contacts of infected people, has seen its cases balloon to more than 23,000 as the virus spreads in dormitories for foreign workers. Officials in Wuhan, the Chinese city where the outbreak began and which celebrated its recent emergence from more than two months in lockdown, said it would test all 11 million residents after six new cases were confirmed this week. In the north of China, the city of Shulan, near the Russian border, has been declared high risk after 15 people were infected, cases that were traced to a 45-year-old woman, but how she caught the virus is still unclear. And in South Korea, which has been a pioneer in using technology for contact tracing, more than 100 new cases have emerged after an infected man visited bars and clubs in a Seoul nightlife district. The mayor ordered night spots closed indefinitely, end quote. And adding to that, in Germany, the R0 rate is back over 1, meaning the virus is spreading again, and India is seeing close to 4,000 daily new cases, despite having one of the strictest lockdowns. Spain is reopening to visitors, though with 14-day quarantines upon arrival. England has said that the Premier League will return in the fall without fans and with heavy restrictions. Meanwhile, Germany's Bundesliga is resuming games this weekend. And as more and more nations begin reopening, the WHO has warned governments and the public to exercise, quote, extreme vigilance. Though they did also offer some promising news in a briefing today, spokeswoman Margaret Harris said, quote, we do have some treatments that seem to be in very early studies limiting the severity or the length of the illness, but we do not have anything that can kill or stop the virus. We do have potentially positive data coming out, but we need to see more data to be 100% confident that we can say this treatment over that one, end quote. And as far as reopening here in the U.S. goes, three upstate regions of New York will reopen certain types of businesses this weekend. Those are the Finger Lakes, the Southern Tier, and the Mohawk Valley. New York City, however, will most likely not reopen until June, Governor Cuomo said in a briefing yesterday. Regions in New York must meet seven out of ten thresholds in state-mandated health-related areas before they can reopen. New York City has so far only achieved four. Five patients died in a fire at a hospital in St. Petersburg, the second hospital fire in Russia since the pandemic began, according to the Times, it was caused by an overloaded ventilator. The fire occurred just as Russia lifted their national lockdown. Russia is second only to the U.S. in the number of daily new cases. The Financial Times has a really well-designed interactive tracker where you can do a side-by-side comparison of any two countries to see their confirmed cases and vitalities over time, cumulatively, and more. It's really interesting to look at in the context of nations reopening. I'll put the link to that in the show notes, and if you want to see a similar breakdown of U.S. states, I'll put the New York Times tracker that we mentioned last week in the show notes as well. And finally, if you're speaking about COVID-19 in French, make sure you use the feminine LA. The Académie Française, who for centuries has been the arbiter of the French language, has officially ruled that while coronavirus is masculine, the disease it causes is feminine. This is apparently because compound words should follow the gender of the root words, virus itself is masculine, while the word disease, or la maladie, is feminine. So there you go. With so many countries that had been on downward trends now seeing upticks, including many that had previously had very successful lockdown policies, and with the news last week out of New York that 66% of 1,200 COVID-19 patients surveyed there had been staying at home prior to falling sick... Is it time to start reconsidering the protocol here in the U.S. and most of Europe that people with mild cases recover at home? Across much of Asia, individuals who test positive and present only mild or in some cases even no symptoms are mandated to isolate outside of their homes in facilities like dormitories or converted exhibition centers. In Vietnam and Hong Kong, even the close contacts of an infected person are isolated in these facilities. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, In Italy, where there are at least 217,000 confirmed cases, officials are learning that homes have become prime venues for transmission. The National Health Institute, Italy's chief disease control body, found that more than one in five people who tested positive since April 1st were likely infected by family members, according to data updated last week. That is second only to infections in nursing homes, which account for roughly half of the confirmed cases, end quote. End quote. A medical team modeled and compared isolating at home versus in a designated facility, publishing the results in a letter to The Lancet, and found, quote, In a city of 4 million people, home-based isolation would result in 190,000 fewer cases, representing a 20% reduction. With what they call institution-based isolation, that number would be nearly 550,000, or a 57% reduction, end quote. Additionally, housing people in facilities where they're monitored could save the lives of the many patients who experience mild symptoms for a while and then rapidly progress to more severe symptoms requiring ICU treatment. Still, many doubt such a strategy could work in the West, especially here in the U.S., mandating that someone leave their house and especially separating them from their family would quickly raise debates about civil liberties. Harvey Feinberg, chair of the Standing Committee on Emerging Infectious Diseases at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, however, thinks it could happen in the US, starting as voluntary and then perhaps expanding from there once people see the benefits. This incremental expense would actually be a rounding error in the overall cost of the pandemic, Dr. Feinberg said. If all it did was to shorten the course of the pandemic by six weeks because it accelerates the deceleration, that would repay itself many times over. It seems like stores are finally just about restocked with most items. My local grocery stores went from a few weeks of absolutely no toilet paper in sight to only selling this one brand of pink toilet paper to finally having almost normal amounts and selections back in stock. Pasta, beans, and eggs are being replenished more quickly and even hand sanitizer is more readily available. But one item that remains elusive, disinfectant wipes. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, Clorox has increased production of disinfectant products by 40 percent, but sales have stretched to five times the normal level at times during the spread of COVID-19. Clorox finance chief Kevin Jacobson said U.S. sales of disinfectant wipes were up 146 percent for the eight week period ending March 25th compared with a year ago, according to Nielsen. Jacobson added, We're shipping canisters of wipes every day to our customers, and within 30 to 45 minutes, they're gone from shelves. Demand has outstripped what anybody could have imagined. End quote. Clorox says it doesn't expect to catch up with demand until summer, and Lysol maker Reckitt Benkiser Group doesn't know when supplies will replenish. So why does it take so much longer for disinfectant wipes to restock when other high-demand items like toilet paper have bounced back? Part of it is the demand issue. Unlike toilet paper, which is a staple in all homes and businesses, only about half of households kept disinfectant wipes in stock before the pandemic, Jacobson said. Disinfectant wipes also have a longer, more complicated manufacturing process, unlike something like hand sanitizer, which is now being produced by tons of companies new to the game, like breweries and fragrance makers. Disinfectant wipes, meanwhile, have to combine both fabric and a cleaning solution, one which must meet certain criteria from the Environmental Protection Agency. To meet demand, Clorox has pared down its offerings, halting production on any wipes that don't meet the disinfectant criteria, and working on long-term solutions, like adding manufacturing lines for disinfectant wipes to factories with extra space, since they don't foresee demand slowing too much even after the initial threat of the pandemic has passed. So somehow, it's May already, and I'm not quite sure how this happened, despite, you know, logically understanding the passage of time, because right now every day kind of feels like a whole year, and months seem to be passing by like seconds. Apparently, I am not the only one feeling a disorienting relationship to time right now. Vox spoke to Dr. Adrian Barton, a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University and the author of the book A Brief History of the Philosophy of Time, about why the pandemic is messing with our sense of time. Quoting Dr. Barton's interview in Vox, Subjective time perception mainly has to do with the combination of emotion and attention. The type of emotion that we experience affects the type of attention that we have to pay, in combination with our external circumstances. When we're relaxed and engaging in some kind of routine or productive activity, we're experiencing what psychologists call flow. Flow is this relaxed, outward-directed attention, and it can be pleasant and calming. That's exactly when you say that you lose yourself. Flow can result from different activities for different people. It could be knitting or carpentry or playing an instrument or golfing or yoga. Being in this quarantine situation also involves demands on our attention, but they're different kinds of demands on our attention. No matter what your life situation is at this point, you're probably experiencing some kind of stress and anxiety and your routine is disrupted. You're probably not doing what you normally would do. You've been broken out of your routine and broken out of flow. So what we wind up with is the opposite of flow negative, inward-directed attention under what we call cognitive load. That is to say, having a lot of stuff on your mind. The psychological opposite of flow is called rumination. That's repetitive, obsessive, negative thoughts about the situation and tasks you're engaged in. So the state of rumination is closely associated with subjective reports of time slowing down and dragging by. End quote. So time can feel like it's dragging in the moment. But, Dr. Barton adds, because many of us are out of our usual structure and perhaps doing less of things we feel productive or good about, when we look back on time, it can seem like it went by really quickly because we don't feel like we really accomplished anything. And being thrown off our schedules then throws us off our sleep schedules, which is cyclically caused by and causing more of negative feelings like stress and anxiety. Quoting again, So the order of the day is all about this internal confusion, and our feelings of the duration of the day and our rapid retrospective judgments to the passage of time are getting pushed and pulled in multiple ways all at once. We're experiencing negative emotions. Time slows down. We're burdened by complex processing tasks. Time speeds up. But if a lot of the complex processing is inward directed, time slows down, and not much gets accomplished in a satisfactory way, then time speeds up. We're experiencing all these factors at the same time. It's a big, massive internal confusion, and then we don't sleep well. End quote. There are some people who are faring okay in this anxiety-inducing time vortex, though. Kids. They're still engaged in their hobbies, losing themselves in flow while playing with toys and not spending a ton of time ruminating on existential dread, which is what a lot of us adults are spending any free time we have doing. So, Dr. Barton advises, try, if you can, to make time for pleasurable hobbies, productive hobbies. Try to get lost in that flow and feel a sense of accomplishment afterwards. It'll help balance out your internal sense of time as this strange new normal marches on. If you've been doing a lot of video calling for work or to keep in touch with friends and loved ones, you might be experiencing what some people are calling Zoom fatigue. Maybe you've come across various tips to reduce these feelings of mental exhaustion and increase productivity, like having shorter calls and more defined goals for meetings. But there are also some cool theories from audio and sound research that can be applied here. Quoting Science Alert, The voices transmitted through the internet in real time are unedited and therefore crude to our ears. That's why we can while away an hour listening to a podcast interview, but feel drained after a video meeting, even if we didn't have to contribute. Unnatural, unexpected, and annoying sounds invoke a response in our brains and forces us to concentrate on them. In a conference call or video meeting, your voice is transformed by the microphone. high pitch frequencies will be amplified, resulting in a squeaky Mickey Mouse effect. Subtle sounds such as key tapping and swallowing sounds will be captured and amplified through the system. Squeaky chairs, eating crunchy snacks, and slurping coffee can sound to the listeners as if you're chewing in their ears. End quote. The problem is, just like you often don't know when your video froze to everyone else, you can't actually hear what you sound like to other people on the call, like you can with in-person situations where you're sharing an environment. So if you don't want to be a perpetrator of all these annoying sounds, Science Alert recommends recording a test meeting by yourself, listening back, and then making adjustments based on what you hear. Maybe changing things like the position of your microphone or switching to a mic that's attached to headphones instead of relying on your computer's webcam microphone, which can reduce a lot of environmental noise like keyboard clacks. Another reason video calls, especially group ones, can be exhausting is because we're used to being able to use things like head nods and nonverbal cues like "Mm mhm and "Uh uh-huh to follow a conversation. Technical difficulties causing lag or interrupted speech can make it even worse. Our brains have to work even harder to process what's being communicated. A big part of solving this issue is just acknowledging that it's the reality of video conferencing. But doing things like speaking as clearly as possible and utilizing the chat feature for small commentary and clarifications or even using closed captioning on some apps can really help as well. Also, consider the space that you're using for video calls. Quoting again, Conversations in a household environment bring background noises as well as echoes and reverberation due to room acoustics. Typical background conversations in open-plan offices can easily be filtered out subconsciously by our brain due to its ability to separate sounds by their location or direction. These spatial clues allow us to focus on a single speaker in a crowded room. Without the aid of directional information, background noises and speech become a lot more intrusive." So you can keep that in mind when you're going to be speaking on a meeting and try to find a quiet place to log on, preferably with a door you can close if you have pets or small kids you want to keep out. And soft furniture, things like blankets and pillows, even bookcases can help make the acoustics of your call sound better. Of course, all of these tips are really to help you sound better. So if you really want to reduce your own Zoom fatigue, you should encourage others you're calling to try some of these strategies as well. And if all of these video calls are making you actually miss going into The Office every day, maybe you'll like this. Online creative collective Mischief is recreating every single episode of The Office via Slack in real time. You can watch along every weekday from 9 to 5 by joining the Slack workspace, in which there are multiple channels to jump between as scenes go along, including one for sales, accounting, and the party planning committee. I'm crossing my fingers for a Finer Things Club channel once they get to it. So far, they're just on season two, so you don't have to go too far back to catch up. Link, if you want to follow along, as always, is in the show notes. Scientists have discovered the gene responsible for the Cape honeybee being able to reproduce asexually. Professor Benjamin Oldroyd in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences said, quote, Scientists have been looking for this gene for the last 30 years. Now that we know it's on chromosome 11, we have solved a mystery. End quote. The gene, GB45239, doesn't just enable the cape bees to reproduce asexually, but all of those births are daughters. Incidentally, this is also the plot of one of my favorite mockumentaries, No Men Beyond This Point, in which women in the 1950s started having spontaneous pregnancies without having sex and only birthing daughters, leading men to become nearly extinct by present day. And for a comedy, it's actually pretty thought-provoking. I recommend it. But anyways, back to the bees. Turns out, not only do cape bees have the ability to produce daughters asexually— but they can also be genetically reincarnated as the queen bee. Yeah, this subspecies is wild. And it turns out that reincarnation thing can cause a lot of conflict. Quoting Professor Oldroyd in Science Daily, Instead of being a cooperative society, cape honeybee colonies are riven with conflict because any worker can be genetically reincarnated as the next queen. When a colony loses its queen, the workers fight and compete to be the mother of the next queen. And they also present a danger to other bees. Quoting Science Daily, These traits also lead to a propensity for social parasitism, a behavior where cape bee workers invade foreign colonies, reproduce, and persuade the host colony workers to feed their larvae. Every year in South Africa, 10,000 colonies of commercial beehives die because of the social parasite behavior in cape honeybees. End quote. Despite the threat to themselves and other bees, scientists are enthusiastic about the discovery of this gene because many have long thought that the mystery of the cape honeybee could lead to clues about the origin of sex, the origin of animal societies, and maybe even uncovering how to apply this gene functionally to other species, leading to fascinating and revolutionary breakthroughs in agriculture, biotechnology, and more. But until all that, we'll just keep marveling at these freaking awesome bees and Well, hoping they don't take over the world. That is all for you today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Sick of being upsold at gyms?